I want to begin by asking you to come on a journey with me, uh, a bit of mental time travel, if you will. I want you to cast your mind back to just over a month ago, to the final day of December, as the uh, time is ticking and the clock is nearing midnight, and we stand on the threshold of a new year. I want you to get yourself in that space, and I want you to notice that in that space there are two emotions or uh, atmospheres that are very tangible in our nation at that moment. The first is optimism. We stand as one year passes into the next. Yes, recognizing that this year has nationally, internationally, and personally perhaps contained uh, battles that have been lost or, or hardships, but we stand ready for a new day, a new dawn, a new year, even as we pass from the 2010s to the 2020s. A really new day, a really new dawn, a really new year. And there seems to be this moment that we take uh, nationally where we, we reflect, yes, on the past, but we look forward into the coming year and we say, right, this is the year. This is the year where I'm going to nail this or I'm going to sort this out or I'm going to grow in this. And I can't, yes, I've struggled with this, but now this is going to be the year. New year, new me. And there's that optimism. Uh, and uh, I don't know whether you shared that optimism uh, whether you get into the New Year's resolutions thing, whether that's your game or not. Uh, just to tip you off to be personal, I'm currently, at least, quite into New Year's resolutions. Uh, I am quite a haphazard person, generally, and so any opportunity presented to me to think about my life with deliberateness, is that a word? Uh, that's not a burden to me. I receive that as a blessing. I'm like, great, I will think about my life. And I did that, and I thought about it, and I thought about what I wanted to put in place for the coming year. And I think this optimism shows something really important. Change, whatever your worldview, is desirable. Change is something that we want to see happen in our life. Whatever our vision of the good life is, and that would be different depending on our uh, beliefs and our values, but whatever we think the good life is, we want to change to be nearer towards it. Change is really desirable. None of us wants to be in 10 years stagnating or declining or going backwards. We want to be progressing, growing, and changing. But maybe... Maybe you don't share that optimism at the start of uh, a new year. Maybe you more embody another emotion, which is tangible in our culture at this time, which is cynicism, okay? The, the new year is for the cynics, okay? Because you've done Christmas, and you've done the bit where you have to be friendly and cheerful to everyone, and then new year hits, and you see all these people going, new year, new me, and you sort of roll your eyes at them, and you think, oh, yeah, let's see how your gym membership's going in March, mate. Come on, yeah, let's see. Maybe you're cynical about New Year's resolutions and change because they seem to set the bar too low, New Year's resolutions. Like, you're someone who's so disciplined, you resolve afresh every day, many times, and you're very disciplined. And so to think you'd only be interested in that once a year seems to set the bar too low. I think much more common is this cynicism that New Year's resolutions seem to set the bar too high, right? And, and we know that we've tried that, and we struggle with that. And, uh, you know, you buy your bike, but you don't ride it. <laughs> or you set your course on this new pattern of behavior, and then you struggle again. 
And I think that what can happen is we end up being pretty cynical because change is desirable, but change is difficult. Any true change is difficult. Uh, I speak with personal experience of buying a bike, and um, it remains in the garage. And actually, riding it regularly enough to get fit is difficult. You know, simple change, uh, little life hacks, little tweaks, little get your breakfast ready the night before so that you're quicker in the morning. Little changes are easy, but deep change, lasting change, is hard. And cycling is just one little example that's kind of surface level. But when you think about internal, personal change, it's really difficult. If you wanted to change your relationship to food or your tendency to avoid conflict or rush into conflict or problems with self-worth or unhelpful tendencies with money or substances or phones or sex or fears or insecurities or a tendency to show off or gossip, those things we know are hard to change. And uh, because change is hard, I think we can often lose hope that change is really possible. Maybe we look at others who are so naive, thinking, new year, new me. And you've just learned that it's harder than that, and you've actually lost hope. Hope for others to change, and maybe even hope for yourself. You've assumed that you must always be stuck in patterns that you're in, or ways of thinking or doing or speaking that you're in and that real change is too difficult to be truly possible. I recognize these two feelings in me, but I think they're not our only options. I think that there is a way to think about change that is not naively optimistic, nor cold and cynical, but there is a way to think about change, and I'm going to try and look into some of it today, resources from the Christian faith particularly, that can really help us deeply, deeply, change. And I think part of what this morning is going to do for some of you is to give you hope again that things about yourself that you'd love to grow out of, you're not stuck. There can be deep and lasting change. We really can grow and become more and more the people we were born to be. And how are we going to do it? We're not going to think about everything there is to say about change this morning. That would take us too long. But I want to look at three questions with you. Um, just pop these up for us. I want us to look at why, where, and how. And uh, if you want to change, you need to have a healthy answer to the questions why, where, and how. Why? Why do you want to change? It's a question of motivation. Uh, there are many reasons you might want to make changes in your life, but we need a healthy answer to that question. Secondly, I want to uh, look at where. Where does true change happen? If you want to really change, where's the battleground? Where does that really take place? And then uh, we'll take a little break at that point. There'll be a chance for you to send in questions. And then uh, with the help of Barbara, we're going to get really practical and think about, okay, I've got a change I want to make. How do I make it? What do I do today to make changes? And Barbara's going to help us with that. Is that okay? Why, where, and how? Firstly, then, let's think about motivation. If you want to make a change in your life, and, and regularly I do, and regularly people will come to me and say, Rich, I really want to grow in this, or I really 
I'm doing this a lot and I don't want to anymore. Uh, Can you help me? Can you help me grow? And the first question I always ask them is why? Why do you want to change? I think we essentially have two options for a motivation for change. Here's the first. The first option is this little equation. Just uh, have a look at that and think about it for a moment. The idea here is that we want to change, make a change in our life in order that, so that we would get a sense of being loved, accepted, or at peace. Either loved by someone else, accepted by someone else, or just a sense of peace in ourselves. And this is often the logic of many world faiths, uh, where the idea would be that if you can, and the language would be different, but if you can be uh, holy enough, devout enough, enlightened enough, detached enough, pure enough, faithful enough, then at the end of your life, if you have done that enough, you will receive love, acceptance, and peace from God or the gods. If you can get things that are wrong out of your life and assume right practices and progress, then eventually you will get to love, acceptance, and a state of peace. Uh, You know, uh, it was the Buddha's final words. It's a a world faith that I have a lot of respect for. I've learned a lot from um, things that I've read from Buddhism. But the Buddha's final words were this. Work hard to gain your own salvation. They were his final words. This idea that you, why do I want to change? I change towards salvation. Love, acceptance, peace. Now, it's not just world faiths that have this logic. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, yes, Rich, this is why I don't like religion. (laughs) This is why I don't like this stuff. Okay, but it's not just world faiths that think like this. I think I think like this a lot of the time, and I bet you do too. Let's think about a couple of changes that I want to make this coming year and show you um, how I can slip into this sort of thinking. The first is around losing weight, okay? Uh, I'm uh, someone who my BMI, according to the calculator, is a little bit up the the red end and beyond. And so for me, a change that I want to think about is whether I can become more of a healthy weight. Just cards on the table. Uh, No questions about that in the Q&A, please. (laughs) Just a change I want to make. Now, if I'm not careful, I can end up slipping into this sort of thinking that I need to lose weight because when I'm a certain shape or size or whatever, then I will be accepted. And then I'll fit into this culture's vision of what a man should look like. And when I get to this place, then I'll feel, maybe just even in myself, like I can accept myself now. I can be at peace in myself now. Anyone resonate with that idea? That I feel not at peace But if I could change my weight, then I will feel at peace. There's another uh, thing we want to do in our family this coming year. We want to think about being more eco-aware and uh, getting more sustainable and reducing our use of plastic and thinking about that. That is a very good change. I think that flows from my Christian faith. I want to be serious about that. But if I'm not careful... I can slip into this mentality where if I could ditch some plastic in my house 
and get my toothbrushes all made of bamboo instead, then I will progress to a point where I feel like I'm a good person now. Like, if I can recycle enough and think about it enough, those are good changes. But if I'm driven towards, then people will think I'm good. Then people will accept me. Then I'll be in the in crowd. Then I'll be like a goodie. Actually, it can be a really unhealthy motive. Think about it. Think about a parent who motivated their children to change like this. Who motivated by withholding love, acceptance, and peace and dangled it as a carrot and said, if you pass your exams, little Jimmy, then I'll love you. Then I'll accept you. Then you'll have a sense of wholeness. I think that would be a really unhealthy dynamic. Uh, My kids aren't taking exams yet, so I might resort to it. But I think that would be a really unhealthy thing. Maybe some of you know the experience of, of being in a home where that was kind of your experience. And it can be very effective. There's nothing more effective to motivate short-term change than I'm I'm not going to love you unless you change. Of course you would want to then change. But I think that's a really unhealthy dynamic. Let's make it even more personal. (laughs) Think about a perhaps perhaps late teenagers, uh, a young couple, uh, a guy and a girl. And the guy says, I will love you. I will accept you. Our relationship will be amazing if you do this or this or this for me. Then I will accept you. And actually, we know in our city and in our culture that many relationships use that sort of dynamic. The kind of, I will accept you once you've jumped through my hoops. It's very manipulative and really unhealthy. I think we want to get rid of a motivation to change that is towards a sense of love, acceptance, and peace. Because if you do this and you fail, how do you feel? Genuine question. Someone help me. If you are trying to make a change in this dynamic and you fail, how do you feel? Yeah, the opposite of all of those. It's not just your weight loss that's up for grabs. Can Rich lose a pound or two? Now my sense of love, acceptance, and peace, and wholeness, and well-being, and joy, and security is all gone if I fail. And this is my dynamic. Do you see that? Now what happens worse if you succeed with this? If you make changes, and you get there, and you become the person that you were trying to be, right? And now you're in. You become, what do you become? You become smug, annoying, (laughs) like really harsh to other people who haven't climbed the ladder, who haven't jumped through the hoops, right? And that's no good either. There is a group of people in Jesus's day that were like this. They were better than all of you and me. They had made so many changes, They were disciplined. New year, new me. They had 100,000 resolutions and they kept all of them. And yet they did it motivated towards a sense of, then I'll be better than others. Then I'll be in. Then God might love me. And they were called the 
Pharisees. And they are not the heroes of the New Testament. Maybe you think that Christianity is about becoming good enough so that then God will love you. The people who do that in the New Testament are the butt of all of the jokes of the New Testament. And their lives look very structured and disciplined and good, but they have done it from a terrible motivation, which makes them harsh and cold. Here's the good news of Christianity. The good news of Christianity is that the order is reversed. Christianity still includes love, peace, and acceptance. Christianity still includes change and an instruction to change and a model for change, but the order is flipped around in the Christian faith. The Christian message is that the acceptance of God, the love of God, peace with God, are not goals to attain once you have nailed all your resolutions or once you have become sustainable enough or slim enough or righteous enough. They are not goals to attain. They are gifts to receive at the outset. A Christian receives the welcome, acceptance, and love of God as a gift at the moment that they become a Christian. Ephesians 2, a verse in the Bible, verse 8, says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. He top loads love, acceptance, peace, and, and pours it on us at the start. Uh, the Christian faith says that I could never work towards being good enough. I could never be enough, but that Jesus is enough for me. He lives the perfect life on my behalf, and on the basis of his perfect life, God accepts me with all my imperfections entirely at the moment that I turn to him and say, yes, God, I want to follow you. And the final words of Jesus were not work hard to gain your own salvation. They were, it is finished. He did it. He lived it. He died for my mistakes. And now because of him, God loves me and accepts me and pours his grace on me first. Now, often people would say then, and I've had conversations like this, people would say, well, what on earth is your motivation to change then? If you, as a Christian, get, you know that the scales are tipped in your favor and you know that on the last day you will be welcomed by God, whatever you do, then what on earth is your motivation to try and be devout and try and be holy? And people would ask that. I'd say that completely misses the dynamic of a love relationship between a, a Christian and their God. Think about this. A, a mum and a dad um, pour out love, acceptance, security into a home. Uh, they raise children with, with this love, this affirmation, this sense of, I love you, I take pleasure in you, well done. Whatever you do, whatever your exams are like, I love you. There is nothing you could do to make me stop loving you. Now, my parents were pretty much like that, and I was a right scally to them when I was a teenager. So kids can do different things, okay? It's not a formula. But it wouldn't be logical, would it? If, if a parent pours in love, acceptance, and all of that, it's not a logical response that the kid would go, because you have so loved me, I'm going to burn your house down and spit on you. 
right? That's not rational. Now, kids do strange things. I didn't burn my parents' house down. Uh, I potentially wanted to at different moments. But it's not, I'm not saying this is an equation or, or, or a, a formula. But there's no rational thing that says the more someone knows they are loved and accepted, the more they're going to stick two fingers in the face of that person. That doesn't make sense. No, rather, you would imagine that that would be a context for loyalty, for love, for a sense of, oh, I'm so grateful. You know, my relationship with God is not motivated by me thinking, oh, he's not going to love me. He's not going to love me. I need to be good enough. No, rather, my obedience to God is motivated by the fact that he has been so good to me, so kind to me, so generous to me, that now he has my heart. He has my loyalty. I would hate to deliberately reject him and dishonor him. Because of the pouring out of acceptance and love and grace in my life, that has motivated me to want to honor him. Do you see that? And now, if I fail which I do multiple times a day. If I fail, notice that I don't have to be crushed. I'm not working towards a sense of peace and love and acceptance. I have that. So now I fail. And that's a shame. And I need to think about that. But I'm not crushed by it anymore. I can get up and go again because I'm loved and I'm accepted. And if I succeed... And I, motivated by God's grace in my life, really do make changes and really do grow, then it shouldn't be that I pop out the end of that as this arrogant, harsh, kind of smug person. Maybe there are things to work on, but it shouldn't be that, that, that case. If I am motivated by grace and I see changes in my life, I pop out the end grateful, full of wonder humbled that God would work even in my life. Do you see that? We have to, if we want to make changes, rid ourselves of a poor motivation and get a motivation that is not for acceptance, but from acceptance. Does that make sense? Now, time is getting on, and I want us to think about this second question. Where does real change come? Where? Where's the battleground? If you want to make changes, where do you need to go to make changes? Now, most attempts to change focus on our behaviors, the things we do. We notice that we do some silly things. We want to stop, so we try hard to stop the silly things, right? Uh, do, do any of you do silly things? Yeah, like I do. And so I spot that, and I think I want to stop doing that, so I need to think about how I'm going to stop doing that. But actually, if I only focus on behaviors and try and manage my behaviors, I'm actually missing some of the power that is available to change. Let me give you an example. If, if, if I struggle with comfort eating, one healthy way to grow in that is to say, I will not buy donuts anymore. I will only buy celery, okay? And I will fill my cupboards with celery so that when I want to comfort eat, I will not be able to get donuts anymore. But that focuses on the behavior, right? That's behavior management. Actually, a Christian understanding is much deeper. I want to take two examples from nature. Uh, first, the iceberg. 
The Christian understanding of behaviors is that they are the tip of the iceberg, that they are visible, they are easy to spot, and they're the things that stick out and get in the way, but that they are enabled and upheld by a wealth of things that you can't see under the surface. Or to use an analogy that Jesus uses, don't take this personally, but a lot of times in the Bible, Jesus calls us trees. It's just part of being a Christian. You have to get okay with that. He calls us trees all the time. And uh, Jesus says that behaviors are fruit. Behaviors are fruit. Good behaviors are good fruit, and bad behaviors are bad fruit. But what happens if you chop off a bad bit of fruit? What happens? What happens? It comes back. You chop off a rotten bit of fruit. What happens? It just comes back. Actually, where the tree is rooted and what's underneath the fruit, where is the fruit coming from, that's much more important. And Jesus goes on in that analogy to say his most famous uh, phrase about change. He says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Earlier in the Bible, it says, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Everything we do comes out of our hearts, our affections, our desires, our longings, our wants. And so the arena for real change is not merely pruning the behaviors. The arena for real change is to go to the heart of the matter and look at why do I comfort eat? Why? What is driving this? And that's a lot more scary to do. But if you can get an answer to that question and then find a way to change at the heart level, then the fruit starts to come in your life that is healthier. Uh, Christian counselors Tim Lane and Paul Tripp put it like this, beneath the battle for behavior is another more fundamental battle, the battle for the thoughts and motives of the heart. The heart is the steering wheel of every human being. Everything we do is shaped and controlled by what our hearts desire. Lasting change always comes through the heart. Now, what I want to do to end, because we're running out of time, I just want to show you a worked example or two of this to try and make this really practical. Uh, Let's put the next slide up. Uh, It is said that the human heart longs for an answer to these three deep needs and longings. We long to have something to say at the end of the sentence, I'll be okay because. We long for security. We long as well for significance. I matter because blank. I'm not a no one. I'm a someone because blank. And then thirdly, we have a longing, a heart longing for satisfaction, for joy and pleasure. And the Christian understanding of behavior is not that we just do things, but that we do things flowing from a desire for these three things. And uh, the, the solution, therefore, is to meet these three longings with a healthier thing than the negative behavior that we're turning to. Does that make sense? Let me show you what I mean. Um, Comfort eating. Comfort eating is a a thing that I have struggled with and and struggle with. And uh, what do you think is driving that? Someone help me. 
Someone help me. What, 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 why do you think I'm doing that? What heart longing drives my third Yorkie of the day? What do you think? Say again. Pleasure for, for satisfaction. Like life is hard. Life is tiring. And I want to end the day happy. <laughs> and how, therefore, I'm going to do that is I think in my head, maybe if I had another Yorkie, that would make me happy. And so I have the Yorkie. It makes me happy. It really does. <laughs> and that's the end of the talk. No. <laughs> <laughs> and then it makes me sad because it, it just leaves you feeling like, oh, that didn't do it, did it? And the cycle begins again. Maybe when I go to a party and I'm scared to interact, so I hide on my phone. That's just a behavior. Or it's driven by something. What's that driven from? A longing for... Someone say it louder. I can't hear. Security. Security. I'll be okay because it's scary to be exposed as boring in a party. So I'll hide, and I'm okay because I'm safe because I've got this. It's a little barrier. Uh, maybe, let's think of another thing. Uh, perhaps we're drawn to gossip. Okay, we, we, we kind of find ourselves doing that. One approach to change is to say, stop gossiping. The other approach is, why do I gossip? Now, why, do you, why might I struggle with gossip? A longing for louder significance. Because it shows I'm in the know. <laughs> got, some, got some facts, got some deets that I can share. And it draws others to me because then I can say, hey, you, come to me. I've got some things that I can tell you. And yeah, I'm throwing poor Jimmy under the bus, but come to me and I'll tell you. You see, actually, our behaviors... They're driven by heart longings. I hope you can see that what I'm trying to get at there. Now here, as I just finish, is where as a Christian, I think there is incredible power for deep change. Because as a Christian, I have a bigger and a better and a more healthy answer to these three longings than Yorkies, gossip, or hiding on my phone. If I feel scared, which I do, my security can be met not by hiding or putting up protection things, but because I know that God sees me and God loves me. And the gospel says that even if I am boring and even if I am four out of ten interesting in a party or three out of ten funny in a conversation, that's okay because God has seen me and God loves me. So I'm okay. I'm secure. And now I don't need to hide because I have acceptance and security in the gospel. Significance. I could draw people to myself via gossip to feel like I'm someone. I don't need to do that because the God of heaven has sent his son to die for me and he, though you're a no one, I see you as a someone and I pour out grace on your life and I love you. You're a child of heaven. You want to be significant. You, you will inherit the cosmos with Jesus because I love you. Yes, Rich, you are now someone in my family and I love you and you're mine. I don't need to throw little Jimmy under the bus by gossiping about him. I'm already significant. And satisfaction, my third Yorkie, 
mate, I love my third Yorkie. But when I'm sad and I've had a boring day and I'm tired, I could turn to that or I could go, fountain of all pleasures. The creator God is mine and is but a prayer away from communing with me and reminding me that I have access to him, the center of all things that I think are tasty, enjoyable, pleasurable. They all came from him and I have him. So I can turn to him and then I'm free to enjoy a Yorkie if I want to, but not out of a desperate need because my need has been met. This is the power of the gospel, not just to prune behavior, but to get to our hearts. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? That's where change happens, in the heart. 